Welcome to Dangerous Policy. I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our week in review. So Dangerous Policy is a platform aimed at intelligent people where we discuss important issues facing life and society. Nailed it. Yeah, I know. Thank <laughs> you for listening. Um, how are you, Crispin? How's your week going? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, a, a lot's happened. I, I received a, an email uh, from a student at Ohio State University. Oh, yeah. um, and asked me some questions uh, about some work that I'd done. And, and these was a sort of kind of out of the blue. And I was like, you know, this is great. I, I thought I did this, you know, a number of years ago. Uh, what, what's prompted this? And they oh, I'm doing this course, blah, 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 your required reading. And they sent me the syllabus. A required uh, reading. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, apparently, so on, on academia dot something or other, edu, yeah. uh, they track your citations, like how many people cite you in, in academic journals yeah. uh, that are peer-reviewed and published. And I had no idea. Um, so so I had over 1,600 citations mm-hmm. um, uh, in various peer-reviewed journals. Um, the latest one that was uploaded, because uh, I, I haven't gone through the list because you have to pay money and I was just like, yeah, I don't care enough. Um, but... Uh, but there's different journals. So there was the latest one was on medieval studies. So perhaps someone has been watching our <laughs> podcast and talked about Lithuanian history and uh, and actually started putting it in academic journals. That's my hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and so yeah, if if you watch this this video and you you are an academic or you've been doing citations and things, uh, please let please send send us an email. Let us know um, you know if you've been getting things out of this out of our talks. Yeah, that's so. Oh, I mean, in the academia world, that's like such a goal. It did be sounded so many times and. Required reading at uni. Well, I mean, my. Uh, I mean, you look at this. My, paper, my, like, my, so good. Yeah. And like, oh, this person is so. Oh wait, it's me. <laughs> well, no. See, uh, my my opinion of academics is so low, right? Why? So, I mean, academia. I I think higher learning, higher higher research, understanding like new things, discovering new things, coming up with new ideas. Yeah. Of course, that's what we're all about here. You know, we're. we're discussing that sort of stuff here in this channel um but i do find the culture of academia like that's where cancel culture is at its finest the the uk has just announced a new set of laws to Mm -hmm. its great credit so boris johnson the uk government uh, as of i think yesterday announced laws to make freedom of speech in university campuses a requirement for government funding to be received and thus because they were sick of the deplatformings. Mm-hmm. Um, the most notably um, in, in the UK one in, only one in ten academics uh, voted Brexit and of the, those that voted to remain in the UK uh, a vast majority wanted to overturn the results of the referendum. So the referendum oh, wow. comes in and they were just like, yeah, let's like ignore it. Let's have a, uh, like keep voting until this. And then and then there were some uh, academics, most notably uh, Matt Golden at the University of Kent, professor of political science, really clever guy, Matt, Matt Goodwin, I think. Um, he uh, said, look, how about we respect the result? Like this is a democratic vote. And he was completely cancelled like all like mm. from all speaking like invitations uh he, he was received all these threatening messages people tried to get him fired he's the most like reasonable guy <laughs> you know he's not he's not some radical and uh and yet like the, the this this culture has infected 
academia or across the world. Uh, what if you're an academic? Okay, this mm. is what's destroying your reputation. Like, if you're an academic, your mission in life is to pursue truth. Yeah, that's your mission. Mm-hmm. It's not to be a social activist. If you're an activist, join a political party. Do your activism that way or or as a private citizen. Do not try and use your platform as a professional to push your own social agenda. But do you think that like academics like have pressure from like external organizations and go funding cuz I know research relies on funding like a lot, like heavily. Um, oh, of course. But that's that's a different type of pressure. A lot of that pressure is about commercialization. So um, if you are trying to get a, a grant, uh, then uh, you put in your grant proposal. Well, you have to describe why that grant is going to benefit the culture, the society. Yeah. Uh, and so things like, um, you know, we are studying how to uh, improve the milk production of cows, for example. Right, mm. uh, that that would get funding because yeah. you can demonstrate the commercial benefit to the whole society yeah. of that research. Whereas if you are trying to say, look, I want to understand more about uh, what freedom means to, like as I did in the video, yeah. uh, to Americans in twenty first century uh, contemporary United States, uh, we you get funding from certain sources, but they would largely be those that have a particular view or agenda they're trying to push. Mm. Uh, another another great example is um, uh, a lot of groups, religious groups, funding research into uh, the origins of uh, the Black Sea. Um, so th- there was an event, I think 7,000, 8,000 years ago, where the Bosphorus that, you, that exists between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea burst mm-hmm. um the black sea was a sort of salty basin it suddenly had a massive flood as the mediterranean sea just burst into that whole thing and completely flooded uh the continent of europe and middle east mm-hmm. and a lot of people think that that's where the origins of noah's ark the the flood of gilgamesh all of those myths come from because everyone would have experienced such an epoch event uh but there's a lot of evidence against that too, in terms of that being the origin. So, so a lot of a lot of this funding comes from groups that are trying to prove the Bible to be true, and mm. all that. so there's a lot of that those pressures. Um, so there's yeah. commercial pressures, there's special interest pressures. Yeah, I know nutrition like Nestle is a big funder for a lot of like nutrition papers. So it's always interesting to see if cacao is the next um, health food, health food, super food. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the special interests, of course, fund their own their own stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, tobacco companies, you know, did that for years, many years. Um, but having said that that, that, that 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 was more an exception rather than the rule. Like, it, you know, okay. the culture is something that is entirely in the control of academics and mm-hmm. entirely in control of university staff, and the culture has become paralyzing. The fact that... that Yesterday, uh, the Australian National University. Now, I want to be clear about this. There's been some misreporting on this worldwide. There was a, a reporting that this is university policy. It's not. The university has distanced itself from this policy. But a major thing was released saying that we should start calling breastfeeding chest feeding and use more gender neutral language when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, providing for babies and things like that. So, 
that that in our in our university courses we should we should be talking about stop you know changing pronouns and all kinds of stuff. Um, this is like it is part of some university policies, so not assume. Oh yeah, yeah. Some s- some some universities have gone that way. Uh, it's insane, right? Like, I mean, it's fine um, to have that ideology, but it is certainly in a tiny little library tower. That like, yeah. uh, and this is the problem when when companies use university echo chambers as like their own. Like, what's going on on Twitter is the real world, because. It's a large echo chamber on Twitter. It is a large echo chamber, but it is an echo chamber. Like the 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 university staff, academics, they have these conversations with themselves, mm. um, and it, it, I'm very pleased that the United Kingdom has gone in the direction of being like, no, 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 no. Like the university is there to open minds, not indoctrinate. Right? Mm. That's you're to pursue truth. You're you're there to create people who have the critical thinking skills to think for themselves. You need to be able to disclose the strongest possible arguments about what you believe. Mm. Uh, and in, in fact, you should be doing that in everyday life. You should be able to um, articulate the argument against what you believe in a way that the people that are proponents of that argument wish they could do themselves. Yeah. Uh, and if you could do that and still critique it in an effective way, then you have strength in your own arm and discussion. Whereas academics are now at the forefront, the forefront of totally eradicating that uh that that instead of um they've become new new biblical indoctrinators they, they say look uh, here's the conclusion of what is true in the world and here's what those radical right-wing far-right freaks will say mm. as as you know concealing their privilege or whatever uh that's an that's just totally antithetical against what what academics are supposed to be academics are supposed to be pursuers of truth and openness of minds and their failure to do that is a total um, disgrace on Connor's entire academic field, and, and the criticism they're seeing is entirely legitimate. The uh, the university, like academics, used to have overwhelming community support. Like you, you poll people in the community, what do you think of academics? I think it was something like eighty six percent said they had high confidence in what an academic said about a topic. So if uh, an mm. academic said, you know, oh, um, uh, the history of like. Uh, colonial things you know laws in this area was this yeah the overwhelming majority of people would say i trust that over the politician who's telling me otherwise right mm-hmm. um whereas now it's it's much more even between those academics and politicians because they're kind of perceived as doing the same thing uh, academics are not there as sort of neutral clerks as dictionaries looking up the historical record they're seen as activists in the same way that politicians are activists uh, and that's just eradicates their function in society. The academics need to be repositories of truth and knowledge and sage-like wisdom Mm. uh, that is devoid of the political bias. Um, There there was a a museum in Australia that has changed all its wording around the colonisation of Australia to invasion. Right Now, this is a debate that comes up every year and perhaps next Australia Day I'll do a video on it. But... uh, this person sent me a bunch of academic papers that they'd used to justify that decision, right? Because I was, I, I didn't raise it. They raised it with me. They were kind of thought I'd be interested. And I was like, yeah, I'll read through the papers. I read through the papers. And I, I've, I've seldom seen, like, because there was a, a, a legal paper 
that had done it basically arguing that there was sovereignty in Australia and that the sovereignty had been violated. Now, I don't want to get into the legal kind of like gymnastics of this, but it was one of the most absurd propositions and worst arguments I'd ever read in a peer-reviewed publication. Like a generation ago, it would never have been published. Uh, And and in fact, the author, to their credit, the author himself realised how weak his argument was and did put in a lot of qualifications (laughs) um, to try and get it past some reviewers. Uh, But the fact that policy within public institutions had changed based on that Mm. and that clearly this was a work of activism and not academia... uh, was just one minor case of a large larger story where, where what what academics are doing is they're publishing things that are exceptionally weak in terms of scholarship mm-hmm. and then using that, their, their credentials as academics and this peer-reviewed publication as the basis of new knowledge that we have. And then push their agenda. And push, yeah, exactly. And that's that's not acceptable. Uh, that, that That is a, a total... Um, well, it diminishes all academics everywhere. The, the, the level of scholarship diminishes, the level of knowledge diminishes, and it's not the role of academics to actually do this. Yeah, it's quite disappointing, actually. But I don't know. Like, that's why I guess, like, medicine and things are more absolute. Like, because I've, I've been so. the pro- but I've been the process but. of, like, <laughs> actually getting something peer-reviewed and then having to talk to the reviewers and put the comments. Like, it takes forever like, it's yeah. not an easy process, so I'm shocked that it actually does happen, like, so easy, easily in some cases. Like, journals don't do their due diligence. and um... and But journal editors are subject to the same thing. So something was published, uh, I don't want to say in Nature, I, I, it, was, it was in a major, um, a major biology journal that was filled with just apps. Oh, actually, I won't use that example. Um, there was something that published in Harvard the other day or a month ago maybe mm. about uh, the topic was um, uh, racial disadvantage in nuclear weapons. Okay. Uh, and it's everything you would imagine. Oh. <laughs> like, How do they link? <laughs> they found a way. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, there is no way. I'm sorry. There is no way that this has academic merit. It just isn't, right? It, the reason it was published is because the institution itself wanted to demonstrate its prostration points before the woke ideology. Say, so, yes, we're, ah, uh, that's right, systemic racism in the nuclear field, I think is what it was called, something like that. And, uh, uh, and the only way that that can be justified is because the institution wanted to show how it was tackling systemic racism using subject matter that's insane insane okay uh, but that's perverted the highest institutions that was harvard that put that out there you know that the institution infamous for prejudicing against asian students in their administ- in their admissions program i mean that that i have almost no respect for academics today. And it's really sad because, you know, I grew up like everybody else did in my generation, uh, looking up to academic scholars and, and people who are at the forefront of, of intellectual thought and learning and 
pursuit of truth and people who have made new discoveries. I mean, there and there there are um, academics who have passed into history mm. who really extended our field of human knowledge who are being retrospectively cancelled because of some perspective they had said on something mm. completely extraneous to their own work. I mean, even Shakespeare is being cancelled in, in certain parts of the United States. I saw this article the, the other day mm. uh, saying that Shakespeare was sexist, misogynist, blah, 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 all the, all the buzzwords. And thus, uh, we need to have a diverse view of literary, you know, scholarship. Uh, and thus, we will no longer be teaching Shakespeare. And we're like, the, the English language was made by Shakespeare in, to a large extent, you know, like, and, and the concepts of how we perceive our philosophy, like, like you know, his, his interesting critiques and uh, examples of, of Christianity through measure for measure, things like that. Amazing. His takes on Julius Caesar are just amazing. Extraordinary stuff, you know, true, true genius. And yet um, because he was a man of his time in some ways, having, you know, moved between Hay on Wye and Swindon in the 16th century, with all this like newfound knowledge, why is our society like so easily cancelling people or cancelling things in our culture? Like, I, I would have thought, right, that like over years as we expand our knowledge, there's more information out there that we would be, you know, less work and more in, informed. <laughs> but it uh, seems I've... that you can you can break them into categories okay so there are there are different people uh, there are people who don't believe cancel culture exists they, they think that oh it no no no, no there, there's no such thing as cancel culture and and if someone but they is, need to be accountable yeah exactly they're responsible they're, they're taking they're, they're getting the consequences of their actions no one's restricting their freedom of speech or they'll and then there'll be people that say oh it's all private companies private companies can do what they like and then there'll be people who say Oh, we're just yeah holding them to account for their you know transphobic views and things like that, uh, or we are you know decolonizing history. It's probably the famous academic buzzword. That is that um, yes, the reason why Shakespeare is so prominent in our Western literary tradition is because he was a white man, and it was at a time when black voices were suppressed, and thus. The only reason we venerate Shakespeare is not because of his actual literary contributions that he made to our Western culture, but because the voices of others, minorities, were, were marginalised. And thus, we need to rewrite our history books to give greater voice to those who, um, who, who were oppressed minorities at that time. Now, that is an ideology that otherwise intelligent people actually believe, but if you critique it in any five-second point of view, it just it completely dissolves in your hands, right? Uh, because the first question you ask is relative to what? What society in the world in, say, the 16th century uh, w was was more inclusive than the British Empire? Like, like was it was yeah. it was you know the Chinese more inclusive? Was Russia more inclusive? Was the African kind of Zulu Empire more inclusive? Like, Do you think because we just live in a world like full of so much wealth and like prosperity that people are just trying to create? problems <laughs> you know i really wish that was like there was that moment when the pandemic first hit yeah that intelligent people sort of douglas murray a few other philosophers were like you know what this might be a good thing in in one way that uh first of all we'll have a shared experience of hardship that we'll all go through together and that that might bring us a bit closer together as human beings so that yeah. could be a good thing but also once you have real problems 
mm. that this pandemic creates, real problems. You stop worrying about imaginary problems, right? You stop worrying about, you know, whether the trans athletes should be like competing in women's sport and you focus more on the actual how we're going to feed people when, when like no one can work the fields. Yeah. And there was that brief moment where we had that hope, I think, that this would, yeah, for all the problems, would actually kind of create some perspective on the real problems of the world. And I think that held up until George Floyd. When, when, the, when the Minneapolis police officer um, had his, you know, his knee on, on George Floyd's neck and George Floyd died um, and the massive BLM protests erupted around the world and all of a sudden social distancing gave way Mm. Uh, in the leftist media to, um, you know, the the protests, irrespective of whether or not they had the problems. Like, you know, we had those protests in, in the UK and Australia, you know, where we just, I mean, Australia, a different case, but in the UK, like, there's no, there's no violence from my police towards black people that are in the UK. Uh, and yet uh, it just it just blew up across the English-speaking world. Uh, and we went back to where it was. Although there, there is that one moment of hope uh, which is that the the French, much to my Anglo embarrassment, the French government have completely like, which is weird because a lot of these ideas originated in France, but they've utterly rejected this woke ideology. The the, the, the French government was asked about this, mm-hmm. you know, the other day, and they gave them most base reply. Like they were just like, oh yeah, this is American ideology that they're trying to export to the rest of the world and. They're just enemies of truth, you know. Like, uh, there's problems in the Islamic society, cult communities in France. They're committing terrorist acts. We need to do something about this. We're not interested in like, yeah, you know, like woke kind of apologies for it. We, uh, and you you see these reports in the West and and of course in the Middle East and Al Jazeera saying, look, um, you know, the French shouldn't be, you know, offending Islam. And they should, you know, they should understand that some things are sacred and therefore they should expect these things to happen. Uh, certainly Turkey's President Erdogan did this. And Macron, to his credit, is like, uh, this is France. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom yeah. of expression. We have freedom of religion. Mm. We have rule of law. And if you're in France... You respect that. You do that. <laughs> Just yeah. as if we're in Saudi Arabia... We follow their rules, right? Yeah. Uh, and that, I just, I wish the the Anglosphere would do more of that. Be like, okay, we have our cultural traditions, mm-hmm. but because this narrative is taking hold among academics, academics with whom I just have no nothing in common, um, they they think that. Our entire Western civilization is based on original sin, that everything that has been built up in the West uh, is a product of slave ownership and and violating the rights of others. And there's a complete misread of history. You know, all, all of the societies that are doing really well that aren't English-speaking societies today, that aren't, you know, Western Europe and so on, mm. uh, are former British colonies, right? Like, yeah. they've, <laughs> like Singapore isn't doing so bad, you know? Uh, and uh, like uh, that's the thing I was like reflecting on just how yeah again like we speak so poorly of like western traditions but then there is so much of western culture that we should be proud of it's not for nothing that the vaccine was first invented by Edward Jenner Scotsman 
right? Like, who eradicated smallpox worldwide, effectively. Or how scurvy was, like, you know, understood by Sir Joseph Banks and then, like, increased, like, fruit in people's diets for that reason. I mean, the, the, the gifts that Western Enlightenment tradition has given the human race are immense. And also in terms of governance. You finish it off. Oh, okay. So uh, we, we the, the card was full, so we'll, we'll move on. I think we've kind of had that rant. Um, but, but in short, uh, it was nice to be cited uh, so much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't personally see this as any kind of achievement or, or indication of social status. My most, uh, it is gratifying to hear from students. I, I really like if you are if you are doing a course and you come across my work, uh, and you want to reach out. Um, if you obviously have to watch this video, uh, but uh, please do. I, I will always respond to questions uh, and and give people direction on where they might want to take it. I, there, someone uh, when I when I wrote a piece uh in the national interest years ago the talking about trump this was during the campaign before he was elected mm. the two young men uh early career co-wrote a piece critiquing what i'd said they they, they were deeply they, the, whole, the actual title was why rover is wrong about trump and it was plastered across the united states uh it was a good effort. Um, I, I, I mean, obviously, I don't think they were correct, but uh, but I was absolutely delighted um, that they were, you know, willing to take me on in that way. Uh, not to be honest, not that many people are willing to debate me on these things. So, um, full credit to them. And uh, and yeah, if, if you have a criticism of of my work that I've done in the past, please please chuck it up because I'd love to read it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Like. I still don't think it's hope in academia because actually working in it and, you know, doing my honours, like I was dreaming all about research papers all the time and thinking about it late at night. Like you don't stop when you do research. You actually do not stop. Um, so I don't know. It is. I still have hope that there are researchers out there that always want to seek truth. Um, but yeah, let's move on before we... <laughs> yeah, well, well, hopefully that new law in the UK is a step in the right direction. We'll see what happens with Oxford and Cambridge and, and, and the many other penalty of universities in the UK. Mm. Hopefully, if, if we see improvements of them in their, those places over the next few years, um, perhaps it's a model that, that others will follow. Mm. Mm. Sounds good. Sounds good. So this week talked about US. Is the US declining? Is it not? Um, and talked about the relative and then the absolute decline. Mm-hmm. Well, well, relative to other countries because of China's rise in GDP. And, yeah, what I got from the video is kind of a, a mixed bag. Um, one thing that stood out to me, though, was how you kept talking about the US needs to course correct and needs new leaders. And, like, what did you really mean by that? Like, course correct in every way. <laughs> like, every way that there's a line of thinking and the policies and the way that it feels like to be proud to be American rather than feel shame. I don't know. What did you mean by that? Okay, so if you think about what makes a country strong, one of the one of the things, of course, is the size of the economy, which mm. the US has a large economy. One is its military force, which the US is unequal. But another thing that is important is the strength by which people can use the term we, right? When 
we say we, we're talking about a collective, whether mm. it's we, the supporters of this team, we, a political party, uh, we, the people who work at a particular industry. Uh, it's part of our identity. And, and as Roger Scruton, uh, the late Roger Scruton said, uh, we is the broadest term for the nation state. That's the highest level at which we use the term we. Uh, unless aliens come down from outer space, we won't have anything that identifies us beyond that. We will say we Australians, we Americans, we British. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the strength to which someone can identify with another person that they don't know based on that identity is an indicator of their national strength and cohesion, right? So if, if I was to meet another Australian anywhere in Australia, I would have pretty significant confidence that I would be able to get along with a random Australian uh, in another part of the world and see eye to eye on a lot of, like more things that we would disagree on, okay? Like certainly there are people with whom I have profound disagreements, of course, in day-to-day -day life. I am an opinionated sort of guy, but... On the on the spectrum of like things that we would have as shared values, shared identity mm. versus differences, for the large majority of Australians out there, there are many more similarities than differences. And I think we would both experience that. In the United States, that's less and less the case uh, where, you know, if you're from Alabama and you go have a conversation with someone in San Francisco and let's say they met at a bar, you know, in, in Brazil or whatever, would they get on? Would they be able to see eye to eye? Would they be able to see feel like they were the part of a like a group of two mm. in a broader group of people that were mostly foreign? Yeah. I don't have that confidence like I would have with the US of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Uh, it's quite interesting how Americans associate themselves with their state rather than the country. Because in Australia, well, yeah, we're Australian. No, no one's like, oh, yeah, like, no, I'm a Queenslander or, like, I'm from the Northern Territory, but they're like, I'm from Alabama. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's like, a much bigger, yeah, it's a much bigger thing in the U.S. I mean, part of it is, of course, just the size of the U.S. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, our national population is 20-something million. That's, that's like half California, you know. Mm. Uh, whereas, but also, I mean, Americans fought a civil war where a whole bunch of states seceded from the Union. Uh, and when um, they fought against the British, they fought, you know, as colonies. Um, so this whole national United States of America thing uh, is still ambiguous. And, they, um, and, and the way the system works, I mean, as we've said in other videos, uh, most states have one political party, really. Like they... Uh, the, the fundraising, the organizational structure, the recruitment all happens for one party in a place. And what they do is they go dump that money in a few battleground states where mm. there's a bit of diversity. Uh, so unless you're in Pennsylvania or Ohio, Wisconsin or places like that, that are kind of swing states, Florida, uh, then you're not really exposed to different points of view very much. Uh, and when you are exposed to different points of view, that can seem very foreign. I mean, the differences between states in the US really do, do feel like different countries. Um, if you go from you know Utah to Nebraska to uh, West Virginia, um, you, you end up and you feel, you feel a very different place. Yeah. Um, so the, the uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm worried about American national cohesion.
having said that, the Chinese could make some mistakes here. The, the Japanese, in the lead up to the Second World War, they kind of convinced themselves that America, whatever its GDP, whatever it's like, it was kind of a paper tiger. That, that you know, America, they were decadent. They had all this kind of, they, they didn't really have a national cohesion. They were kind of doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Japan, every man's life was the emperor's, you know, like, like it was that they, they felt like they were all one fist. Uh, and thus, because of that sort of force, they should be able to just kick the, the Americans out of out of Asia completely and repel anything the Americans try to do. And then the Americans just through weakness would give up, you know, yeah. and they seriously underestimated Americans in that respect, that the, the US determination, not just to win the war, but to win the war completely. Uh, uh, was insatiable and uh, the Japanese weren't, did not understand the cost that the Americans were willing to impose on themselves um, in order to see that outcome. The Chinese could make that same mistake. I, I, I think the Chinese government looks at themselves as like we're the leaders of the Han civilization, we all have this unity, conformity, Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all working on pulling in the same direction. Um, the culture is one of like trying to fit in and, and support the government. And, you know, we've got we've got a unified people. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Like there, there is a, a strong narrative to that, you know, the whole mandate of heaven thing. Yeah. But uh, and they look at the United States and they look how divided and, and, you know, they've tried to impeach a president twice and they've got like. Uh, their media basically reporting to one group of or the other and and but they the also have media that reports to one group. Oh yes, yes, but <laughs> but they're all one group in the Chinese eyes. Uh, okay. Whereas in in the Americans, they just look at this culture that's massively divided, and they mm-hmm. think, well, how how could they possibly stand up to China's growth? You know, America's fading away rapidly. I think that's not that that's their view, and I don't think that's correct. I think that. Uh, very easily the Americans could rally around something. And if that thing happened to be China, then God help the Chinese. Uh, the uh, World War II was a great national experience for Americans. And as mm-hmm. I said in the video, um, after the Second World War, kind of through the 60s, every person in Congress was a veteran of the war. So you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican was really irrelevant compared mm-hmm. to the fact that you're in the 105th, you know, uh, and, and you could sit down and, like, you might have a profound policy disagreement with someone, but you would still have a drink with them and and work it out, you know, kind of shake the hand and nail out a deal yeah. uh, and, and trust one another. Uh, and so that belief that they were all Americans first um really came through and that's not the case now but it could be something could happen that unifies the country uh the last time that happened was september 11 um when uh the twin towers came down and and everyone felt like a new yorker um in the united states and and everyone was on the same page but then it all fell apart with the iraq war uh the but for for a two-year period everyone in the u.s was kind of like yeah, we're on the same page. We all believe the same stuff, and we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that could happen again. You know, something could happen in the US where everyone's just like, no, no, no let's put aside this this perennial crap. Uh, realize mm-hmm. we're all Americans. We all believe kind of fundamentally certain things, and thus um, 
and thus we can pull together. But the risk is, there is a risk, is the narrative of historical in, injustice that, um, you know, Martin Luther King had a dream that one day you would judge not by the colour of your skin, but the content of your character. And, and what this narrative of saying is like everything that is happening in the US is ha every, every, every privileged group has got it by oppressing others is the narrative. And, and we're seeing this um, not just with, with white groups, but now Asians and Indians and others that are doing well in the United States. When Asian communities are outperforming, you know, white communities, if you want to divide up society that way, significantly in, in the economic stakes mm. and thus they're now considered oppressors uh so there is a um uh, 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 <laughs> i remember uh, that video you did on me <laughs> yeah you're yeah. like charlie's oppressing me <laughs> yes and that's that's but that's weirdly like not like some of the videos that we've made are prophetic like one of that that, that was just one little instance but yeah um but now like if you look at these kind of work narratives um You've got these white adjacent groups, so-called uh, Asians, now being removed from those groups. I saw an advertisement, um, you know, which was basically totally illegal, saying, you know, please no whites or Asians apply because we're looking for marginalised groups. Um, so there's this uh, belief system now that could really undermine things that we're not all Americans first, we're oppressors and oppressed. Yeah, it kind of sucks when jobs and stuff have a quota or something that I don't know what it's based on, but is it just to prove that they're inclusive when they have, I don't know. Yeah, that's a whole other. That's a whole other. I better not go into that. But, <laughs> but um, oh, so it is, it is concerning that this this could really tear America apart. Like, unless they defeat this um, this ideology, but expunge it from their institutions and, and corporations, mm. uh, then we're going to... Um, so on a practical level, mm. would Americans just, you know, I mean, I'm not an American, so I can't be like, do this. And why would I do that? Because you have your own freedoms and rights. Um, at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, challenging people to talk to each other in general, right? Like talking to somebody from the other side and practicing debates <laughs> and not cancelling. I don't know. Yes, I, I think that I, I have to believe that a large majority of people are just not sufficiently engaged. Mm. That this work ideology is an echo chamber that's extremely powerful because it's become it's a product of of people who had previously been indoctrinated in university campuses and then gone out into the workplace and infected institutions like the New York Times, Disney, places like that. And thus uh, they've they've accepted these kinds of things without thought and that the large majority of Americans reject it but they're not sufficiently engaged with the subject material or politically engaged to challenge it mm -hmm. so the, the advice I would give to Americans is to just educate yourself in and, and people generally um, and I don't use the term educate yourself the way the left uses it uh, I mean like just become literate in mm the narrative and understand that the world is not divided into oppressors and oppressed or, you know, bourgeoisie and proletariat. Uh, it, it's divided uh, purely in terms of uh, economic inequality, right, which, which affects everybody 
uh, you can be white and be suffering that. You know, it can be in some limber, you know, lumber mill area where the timber industry is tanked and, and your jobs have been shipped overseas and your place has gone into malaise and poverty. Mm. Just as easily as you could do that if you're in a black community or, or, or Hispanic community. Like that's not the way society is divided. And that we should, when we think of public policy options, we shouldn't be thinking about raising up certain racial groups. We should be thinking about raising people up who need help. Um, and if we can de-racialize the language in the way that Martin Luther King had dreamed, uh, we will achieve much a much more perfect union in the United States. Um, but dividing people up based on identity politics is just a, a recipe for d- division and disaster. I remember when uh, there was an interview. Well, it's clear because the other person's always going to be an other if we do it that way, right? We've got to remind ourselves we're all people at the end of the day um, with problems, different kinds of problems, but they're still problems. All right, and, that, and that term we is quite important because if, if we say we, mm. uh, then there's also a them. And... Uh, innately through human nature, we value we more than we do them. Yeah. And so if we say that we African community or we the woke progressive left uh, believe that the, you know, those on the other side are them, uh, then them can be devalued. Do you think that the woke ideology can fall apart given there's so many holes in it? You would think so. You would think. You would, you would think so. Like the contradictions. So that the, the horseshoe bent all the way around and touched in a way that was amazing. There was the uh, the Washington Post. Yeah. Published an article titled, and I kid you not, this is like last month. I kid you not, it was titled, "We have to talk about multiracial whiteness." Huh. You can Google it. Everyone at home, we have to talk about multiracial whiteness, i.e. we think only white supremacists could be supporters of Donald Trump. But when we look at the demographics of people supporting Donald Trump, we see all these different ethnic groups. Ah, they've been indoctrinated with a culture of whiteness. Uh, And that's, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's insane. Like, it, 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 I, I, it, it, is possibly the best article ever written uh, in terms of just like multiracial whiteness. Like, <laughs> no, I can't take it seriously at all. Uh, and published not in some wacky, you know, academic, but in the Washington Post. Uh, so, wow, you would you would think. That, that would be the end of it. Like you would, you that that would that that is, would be the moment where people would go. That is insane. Uh, but no, people take it seriously and think that there's you know wisdom in this. Uh, but so we're at the end of the road in that in that sense. Um, I, I hope that. Um, I, I hope that that it fades, but it's going to take a long time. I think it's going to, it took a generation to happen. It'll probably take another generation to, to fully expunge it. Uh, it's filled with contradictions. It's totally insane, but it is immensely powerful and very loud and very good at destroying those that are 
that oppose it. Um, because if you control information, if you control tech giants, if you control, I mean, how many people are being raised by Disney Plus? Like mm -hmm. 95 million subscribers. People have Disney Plus not because they enjoy it, but because it, it babysits their kids. Mm. I mean, imagine. I mean, I did watch a nice like movie on Disney Plus the other day. Soul. Have you had a Soul? I heard the term soul. I yeah. It's like a, it's, but Pixar is different to Disney in terms of they have their own team and they're a bit more independent mm. in their creativity. So, I mean, look, I just wanted to, when you watch Disney, you expect just fun, right? You don't really expect huge, big messages, but I feel like Pixar does tackle some big issues. Um, so I guess I talked about life purpose and like, do people have to, do we, yeah, does everybody have a purpose in life? And I mean, ultimately it said that actually, no, it's all this, the little joys in our lives that bring us purpose, not one thing. Um, but no, it was, I don't know. Like, I, I think there is hope. <laughs> I like to think there is hope <laughs> in in this. And I think we'll look back at this time and be like, God, we were ridiculous. <laughs> and we'll curse ourselves. <laughs> Let's rewrite history. Like, we weren't that woke. <laughs> um, I'd like to think. But, um, mm, yeah, we'll just see. We'll see. Um, but... I that idea, you know. I think people, more and more people who come to our channel are intelligent people that want to have this kind of conversation, challenge with ideas, and, you know, that is how we're going to start it, really. Yeah, and by the way, if you believe all this stuff, like, you're still absolutely welcome to leave comments. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, like, obviously, I'm, uh, you know, I have firm views, but I don't attack the audits. Like, I I, I might disagree, um, and but I will... I will, as I said earlier on, try and strong arm your opinions as much as I can. And, and uh, you know, the, the the nicest thing that I can say about the woke ideology is that for for a lot of people, there's an intention to do good. They see injustice. Yeah, they they see they see problems in the community, and they like we want to overcome those problems. And uh, and they think this this is the solution. Now, this is not the solution at all, and it's going to make things much worse. But uh, but the but that motivation, that empathy mm. is, is you know, something not to jettison. Like, that's a critical part of our human compassion. And uh, and, and people who go, oh, um, maybe I have got things really good. Uh, maybe I haven't earned all of that, you know, myself. Mm. Um, thus, uh, people who are disadvantaged, I have to think about. That, that's a, you know, there is luck in life. People do get ahead through things that mm. are just flukes of nature. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. I'm like, well, I'm gonna put myself. I'm a health promotion person, and I'm very. I do have a lot of lefty values. I'm pretty sure that the camera is about to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like shit's cancelled. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, for sure. Like, even though some people might view us like perhaps you, like we are woke lefties and radical. It's like no, like we do want to do good for our community and. You know, we want to try to figure out ways to reduce inequalities. And yes, like sometimes we think that going out and protesting is a way to do that because, you know, it brings communities together, it's a purpose. I don't know. Like it's just, I mean, not everybody is like that. I wouldn't go out there just because of the virus and stuff. I'm from field fear, but like people do that and express their views in different ways. And I think, yeah, ultimately, yes, like we want. I think people do have good intentions when they're trying to have a different, bring their ideologies forward. Um, it's not out of, you know, any, yeah, not intended to do harm. Do no harm is one of our big values, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, do, I do like the intention of the left. <laughs> That's what I want to say. 
Um, do I agree with everything? No. Do I agree everything on the right? No. <laughs> but yeah. Somewhere down the middle, like this. I don't know. <laughs> oh, and everybody, everybody is. Um, yeah. Everybody is like they're, they're things that people have scattered across that entire spectrum. Uh, so yes, well, I mean, I wasn't actually lying about the camera, so I will, I will restart that. But then um, we can talk a bit more about health promotion. It'll be interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we'll talk about health promotion, and uh, we'll link it to to gambling. The topic. Yeah. yeah. So this week you discussed about um, gambling because in the news, uh, Crown Casino, which is one of the largest casinos in Australia, is kind of under investigation due to money laundering. Yeah, they've lost license in New South Wales, so they can't operate a casino in our largest yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but you kind of brought forward in terms of like you know the culture of gambling in Australia. Like mm-hmm. we're the one of the biggest gamblers in the world. We have lots of poker machines, and it's widely accepted to gamble. Um, yeah, and it's also a big part of our culture, especially sports betting. I feel, um, and yeah, Melbourne Cup. Yeah, Melbourne Cup is a big one. Um, but yeah. What are we going to say? <laughs> My problem with health promotion. Uh, okay, so health promotion, for those that don't know, health. Uh, we have a, a group of people in Australia that come from usually academic backgrounds who, who engage in uh, trying to tackle social ills like uh, tobacco and and alcohol. We focus more on prevention. Yeah, uh, yeah, prime pre- prevention. Pre- prime prevention, public health measures, uh, population health measures. Mm. Nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, but um, the way I find they go about it is extremely adversarial. So understandable to one level is that a lot of this was born out of the tobacco fight. So for those that don't know, Australia has the most restrictive tobacco laws of any major country anywhere in the world. And so, the lowest smoking rates in the world yeah. because of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, so taxation is, like, you, you don't want to even know how much it costs to buy a packet of smokes in in, uh, in Australia. It's the it's the value of, like, a week's salary in Indonesia. It's just insane, right? Uh, and the uh, there's no advertising. It's all plain packaging. And I was in the Commonwealth Department of Health when we did that. And so we, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of significant things uh, about health promotion that has vastly reduced the rates of cancer, disease, heart disease in Australia. Uh, you, you go out into restaurants and pubs and clubs in Australia and it's very nice. You're not getting drowned in cigarette smoke and things like that. It's very pleasant outside. Mm. Um, so that's a triumph of health promotion and that required a adversarial relationship with tobacco which fought them every step of the way Mm. unfortunately that socialization that culture has created a let's say an acerbic attitude among many health promotion professionals uh wherein they don't see themselves as like people who are just one interest group among many but really the angels of the world out to fight the demonic corporations that are destroying our culture with all of their social ills, the horrible profits, you know, like while well, they fire little, you know, puppies into the air and use them as clay targets, you know, like that's that's how health promotion specialists in my experience see themselves, you know, that they're the angels fighting all the demons and, and if only they could, you know, elbow their way through all the money and corporatism of you know these terrible giants that own everything that they would save the world on behalf of the little people now 
they're motivated. They're you know they're cute, but like <laughs> they don't they don't realize that most people in corporations are just people who have families and have problems in their own lives and they have stresses and issues and they're worried about their you know their sister who's sick and they, they've got to you know wrangle their kids and there's one kid who's got like a drug addiction and that like they, they don't they don't realize that they're talking to individuals they think they're talking to entities and as a consequence of that they may they write themselves out of the conversation like you know they, they, they and because they treat everyone like it's a tobacco company they, they think that that a wine producer, right, is in the same category as a cigarette manufacturer. Uh, and as a consequence of that, they don't have reasonable discussions with ordinary people. They're like, they become the fun place and people kind of just start to roll their eyes whenever they speak. Um, what should be the case is they go, all right, you have this gambling in Australia mm. and it's causing immense harm all across the community, right? But there's also some amazing positives. It employs a ton of people who are just good people trying to get a good job. There are, it's really entertaining for a large number of like, punters who don't experience harm. They're just out to have a really good time. Uh, it's a really good way to, to meet people, like socially. You know, it's it's, uh, it's a good conversation starter. Like people can talk about gambling in Australia and, and have a conversation about what they think is happening in various sporting mm-hmm. fields and so on like it's a, it's a really it's a good lubricant and uh and it's exciting and it's fun and it's like positive for the large majority um but there are some terrible practices that go on where people who have lost millions are expressly targeted because of their value or uh all these poker machines where um they just isolate people in these little bubbles where they zone out and it's programmed to convince people that to stay for highly addictive you know psychology processes of the brain uh and these things need to be stamped out but because health promotion just has this very adversarial relationship with everybody right because they're the beacons of like and uh, as uh goff whitlam famously said only the impotent are pure uh they they just write themselves out of the conversation because like they don't engage effectively, and they, and everything's a fight to them. You know, it's not like they can sit down as reasonable people and compromise on issues. They can't sit down like they 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 would feel dirty if they were like, you know, associated with the gambling industry, for example. And that's just not the way to be. Like gamb- gambling industry people are like everybody else. They're good people. They want to do good things. They don't want to like make their profits on the backs of the the of the disadvantaged and the poor they just go where the money is because they that's the obvious thing and they don't have any reason not to mm. um and so what you need to be able to say to people is appeal to their reason you know you go okay well um if we get rid of these regulations in these areas that would allow you to open more tables that we you know still profitable employs people, doesn't cause, you know, as much harm and so on, is, is more reasonable than punter and so forth, uh, engages people. You can observe them more directly because they're physically playing there. Mm. Uh, whereas if you've got people locked up in these machines for years on end, I mean, there was a, a friend of mine who, like, in, in, in our city, the, the casino closes exactly twice a year for about uh, eight hours. 
Uh, first of all, it closes on Christmas Day till about midday, mm. and it closes on Anzac Day till about midday. So Anzac Day being our, our veterans kind of holiday. Uh, and what you would have is people at closing time leave and then line up at opening time so they can run to their machine because they're worried that someone else will take, get, their, machine. take yeah. their machine or get their great win that's just about to pay out. And that sort of stuff is incredibly harmful. And we and we know that that's not the way gambling is supposed... It's not pro-social. It's not part of the culture. Uh, and our gambling apps, where, where sports betting is by far and away the fastest rising form of gambling yeah. in Australia. We know who it appeals to. We know what how it works. I do not have any sports betting gambling apps on my phone or anything. Never have. Uh, uh, but I, because I know that, like, I would love it. You know, I would absolutely love it. I'd, 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 I'd finally be interested in sport and be a, a true Australian, you know. Uh, but it's there, there's, a, there's a balance, right? Like, it's perfectly fine for people to watch the tennis and be like, okay, uh, I think, you know, Nadal will do whatever. Um, within Within a reasonable space but it shouldn't be incentivized in such a way that people feel terrible that they've like lost money they lost their rent or lost their they're worried about people finding out and there should be a, a way to do that in a pro-social way that the reputation of gambling entities in australia improves and 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 that's the fundamentally why in health promotion i mean it is still a discipline you need to go to university for it because we are grounded in evidence. Every recommendation comes from evidence. We don't just blanket be like, this is bad because X, Y, Z, and it's a corporation, so they want to make profit. I mean, at the end of the day, they do need to address their bottom line. Um, yeah, but I do understand where you're coming from in terms of, you know, you can't just have a single approach to, you know, what we did to tobacco to do to gambling. Like, it is different. it is a different problem in itself. And... And we we actually have similar approaches, like with with the idea of harm reduction, right? So, in I mean, in Australia, like um, this big thing with um, vaping. I mean, that could be a totally different. I'm not even going to go there. Saying <laughs> change like harm reduction, but yeah, with gambling, like you said, like what you've suggested is a form of harm reduction. And we, as health promotion, we've actually advocated that in drugs too. So, like in terms of um, having oh, what's it? In, Injecting rooms, you know, and a, we had a huge backlash from um, religious groups against that. But, you know, it still allowed people to engage in it in a safe way. So I guess what you're suggesting is having, like, some sort of harm reduction measures rather than stamping out, you know, no, no online poker or whatever, like completely banning it and completely banning this and that, like having... Yes. Uh, I mean, there, there's one difference between gambling and, and drugs, right? Is that gambling is a legal product. Yeah. Um, whereas drugs are illicit in, in most jurisdictions. And then, then people argue, oh, what you should do is you should legalise all drugs and then have their production distribution regulated and taxed and kept to a certain health standard, and that would reduce harm. Okay, Now, that would reduce harm for every individual use. Like if you're using yeah, heroin, uh, you would know that the heroin was produced in a in a safe pharmaceutical clinical grade way and that you, the, the volume you're taking is not going to give you an overdose yeah. and that people can track your progress and so on. All of that is true, but you would also increase the amount of drug use in the community. If all drugs were legal, right? Yeah. The market uh, would increase. The market would increase, yeah. right. So... With gambling, we're dealing with a space where gambling is already ubiquitous in Australian culture and Australian society. And 
restricting gambling is not reducing gambling. It's just driving people underground. It's part of it's part of the. Culture. I think our biggest fear is to have more young people engaged in gambling because a lot of these gambling products, like the evidence shows, that it appeals to children because they're actually instead of watching a game of sport, mm. they're actually really understanding what odds are before even looking at the sport itself yeah. and that's what i think a lot of health promotion is like what why is something that you know australian sport is such a big part of our identity like why does it have to always be associated with gambling and alcohol um but it's another tool you, okay so that's what the, like, there's half of it i agree with in the other half i, I, <laughs> I, I have my health promotion eye roll right the, the the half that I agree with is that it is definitely a legitimate concern to the Australian public and people around the world that children know about gambling before they know about sport, okay? At the same time, uh, children are being used as an advocacy vehicle in a pretty manipulative way, right? People are always like, oh, won't you think of the children? Those, they're playing on the fears that parents have without addressing the harm that's happening right now. You know, like... The, the, the vast majority of people who gamble in Australia are, um, well, there are different types of gambling and different types of gamblers, so mm. it's not true across the board. But for the fastest growing area, which is sports betting, yeah. uh, men aged 18 to 37, 38, uh, single, uh, fully employed, and uh, they run up huge debts um, through their phone apps, running lots and lots of bets. Um, average loss of around 8% per transaction. That, uh, you know, th th that's the group that you need to target, right? Mm. But instead, people are like trying to change legislation using examples about children and what could happen to children because they know it's more effective, right? They know that people care more about children than they care about single men. Uh, well, it's prevention, more or less, because a big part of that, if we were to target that group, say 18 to 34-year-old men, it would be less effective. It's only less effective because, like, you'd be like, well, why? Like, you know, I have my own rights. Like, I should be able to respond to personal responsibility argument. And that's what we come across every time in health promotion is our personal responsibility argument. Like, we're trying to make it easy for people to be healthy and, like, make good decisions, you know, but still, you know, feel empowered to gamble or, like... Well, I wish that were true. Like, that is the space where, where health promotion actually does contribute. So, for example, walking... No, no, no. no. <laughs> All the other spaces. Well, there's a lot of places where it's counterproductive. But, like, but for example, walkable neighbourhoods. We say, like, okay, um, we know that people will walk to the supermarket if it's within this proximity, and if it's not, yeah. they'll drive. Okay. And if they walk, then they carry all their groceries. So they're getting a ton of exercise. They walk there, they get their groceries, they're carrying it all the way home. They're, they've got a, a weighted load as they're walking and that burns a certain number of calories and increases their mm. heart rate and all the rest of it, increasing their overall cardiovascular health. Now, that perceived safety in neighbourhoods as well, as more people are around and you feel like more inclusive in your community. Yeah. Uh, and, we, and we can actually track heart disease based on that. Okay, so, so that... That urban planning stuff, health promotion has a critical role in that, population health, all of that stuff, really useful, okay? But when they say, oh, we want to run up against the individual choice argument and we don't want to do that, so we're going to manipulate it so as we appeal to children because we go, well, everyone agrees they don't have consent and therefore don't have the same sort of, you know, self-aggrandizement, thus... Uh, without that agency, we can appeal to parents and therefore manipulate policy in that way. That is a disgusting way of going. What what people should do, 
right, is go, yes, you do have personal responsibility and freedom of choice. And what we want to do as as with walkability is make it much easier. When I go to um, uh, my my shower, uh, when I get up and go have a shower, mm-hmm. I have all my weights right yeah. next to the door so that like even though I'm super lazy and don't want to go to the gym, I know that there are those weights that on the way to the shower I can actually get up and do. So I do mm-hmm. that every single day. And then I go to the shower and have my shower and wash it all off. And it's great. Like, it's a perfect system. Mm. And, and why do I do it? Because it's easy. It's mm. part of my natural routine. I can get some exercise. I can do my weights. Uh, and it's not disruptive to my day. Now, health promotion people could actually be constructive. And they could say, look, just like our, our walkable neighborhoods where we set up our urban planning to make it easier for people to get improved of cardiovascular health or choose healthy food options and all the rest of that, yeah. we can say we can make it easier for young men who have problems with gambling to control their spend and and have a more mutual shared responsibility between industry and the, and the punter. So the industry has a responsibility to provide ethical services, to detect patterns of harm as they're emerging, to mm. implement their algorithms so that they can detect these things and have interventions to prevent uh, you know, certain practices. And, and then they can target specific practices like people being passed around when they self-exclude from one service yeah. uh, and are then targeted by another service with all these incentives to join. Like that that yeah. sort of stuff. Whereas to, to kind of just say, oh, we're running up against this argument. It's a legitimate argument. People do have freedom of choice. And thus, uh, you know, you shouldn't be fighting that. You should be like, okay, you're right. You do have freedom of choice. We don't want to stop you from doing that. How can yeah. we make it easier? So you have more control and it's the simple stuff like um you know okay let's have a profit and loss statement that appears in every every time you load up the app okay appears right there you know how much you've spent you know how much you've lost right Mm. you then have the tools it's like it's like with the the star rating great idea right with the food so i'm struggling against star oh like this on the star rating it's a a bit nefarious in terms of what gets and it was done with industry as well and that's why it's so weak in my opinion okay as health i think it's a really confusing system because thing is right the star rating mm. well so what they do is they grade it by the line of products so, so as a normal just, what, just to describe what the star thing oh, is, okay so um on it's it's uh not compulsory so people can um companies can choose to be part of the star rating but say you have like um milk and you have bread or whatever and on the milk would be like a, out of five how healthy is it and generally, because milk is whole food, it'll be red five stars. Mm-hmm. Now, somehow a box of cereal full of sugar and fats and everything is also rated like four and a half stars. Consumers are confused to be like, why is this processed box of cereal full of sugar and fat also rated like pretty high? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's because the star rating is by like products. So it's like of all the boxes of cereal, so it could be, you know, a bad sample of cereal, <laughs> essentially. It's graded really high compared to the others, relative to the other products on the shelf. Right. And that's why, and it was actually made with industry, which is good. I mean, like, it's good to have industry input. And I do agree that I think health and well, if it's should, voluntary, you need industry's input. Don't yeah, you? you need industry input. But it's like, it's it's good. I think where, what your point is to have more engagement with industry and like come to consensus. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there is still room for improvement. Um, oh, for sure. So to I get mean, that, that example like, you've given is a terrible example. Like, I mean, terrible is in it's a good example, but terrible that it happens. Yeah, that people get a five star rating or four and a half star rating and they think it's good food, but it's not. 
yeah. that's outrageous. Yeah, and it's kind of like, it, yeah, just like, it, I mean, I know the intention is meant to be good, but it's very, like, obscure. So that's where, like, my biggest fear is, you know, like, as a practitioner, health promotion is kind of like, well, where does it stand, right? Like, it, I guess, like, a no oh, argument would be proportionate to harm, but, like, it's like... Here's a question for you, though. Would you prefer not to have the star rating? yes and educate people on nutrition (laughs) like proper nutrition um because it's like but then again i do like from a package labeling you know if it was non because there is evidence for proper package labeling to improve consumer choice so i mean like you know you could go if you think of an example say a family and they always have cereal and i guess it'll be useful for that family who are super busy have no attention to you know they want to make the best choice, and that's a quick way for them to make an easier choice. But absolutely. Oh, I, so... I, so, so from what you've said, uh, I very sympathetic to the idea that something packed with sugar and, and crap is given a high star rating. That that's outrageous. That shouldn't be the case, and they should reform the system to to prevent that from happening. But a quick and easy way where people don't need to understand the intricacies of the differences between different forms of like nutrition and vitamins and and whatnot and can just go okay well that that star has a higher rating and therefore it's going to be you know better for me than that thing that has a less rating Mm. uh is something that is intuitive for people and appeals to their personal choice like if they want to ignore the star rating that's absolutely their right and they can choose the the less nutritious food um and uh it, it makes it easy like that's that's it's like that that video that we did on, I did on freedom, right? Where um, we, we don't we don't necessarily trade freedom for security, but we do for convenience. Um, and if we found it more convenient, more intuitive to do things in a less harmful way, absolutely, we would do that. Um, I do think, though, yeah, the star rating has improved companies to be more incentivized to reformulate their products. Hmm. And it has changed the culture. Well, I think in Australian culture, like, there is a shift towards, like, fitness and health. I don't know about you, but, like, that's in my circles. True, notice. Like, it's becoming more of a bigger value in our society. Yeah. And and because of that, we're getting a high rise and, like, low sugar options and, like, here are some uh, meat alternatives or whatever. Like, there seems to be a bigger interest. because of- So I guess, yeah, there is, like, pros and cons to it. Um yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think you're like you're you're right to say that if something's packed with sugar and objectively is bad for you, they shouldn't have a higher star rating. Like, yeah, just I can understand that. But the, the wonder, like the idea of a star rating, okay, which has been accepted, is great for everybody. It's great for people who work in that business. Like as you say, like if if you're if you're working in a place and you see something has a two star rating. And you're like, you know what? We could change this, this, and this, and it would be a four star. Why don't we do that? Yeah. Like that improves the product development uh, and distribution. Uh, and then for families and people who you know aren't like they're not they're not all going to be health food promotion specialists, right? Um, and they go, oh, okay, well that's that looks healthier, so I'll grab that pasta rather than that one because that one seems like it's worse. Uh, and that's a, a very um, a, a great way to do it and, and it appeals to human nature and appeals to people's personal choice. Like they feel like the health promotion people then have informed them mm. uh, and empowered them to make their own choices. Mm. Same with the walkability, 
you know, they feel like their choices have increased. They can choose to do, they can still drive to the store and do whatever, mm. or they can, you know, walk to their local supermarket because it's not very far, right? Um, that it's it's that sort of thing. But when when health promotion people get out there and say, oh, you know, it's these industry people who are bloodsuckers trying to like, you know, increase their profits and blah, blah, blah. Yes, you know, for-profit businesses do pursue profit. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, know, it's, I know it's news. Um, but like the the people who make it up are not generally unreasonable, and if you don't if you, if you attack them right out the bat, they're going to be thinking, okay, how do we deal with these people, right? As opposed to, oh, how can we bring them into the tent and bring them? So, so one of the things that I was very proud of with Lottery West when I was working there uh, was that uh, we had very like aggressive academics and health promotion people. Mm. who were willing to work with us um, because we cared about what they had to say and would implement their reasonable suggestions. And we would be able to, we felt we had a good enough relationship that if we had something, we were like, this is going to be really profitable for us. Is there any way we can work this so as it doesn't like cause harm? Mm. Uh, we could have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, whereas I don't think the gambling industry writ large can do that with, with the health promotion people. Like they go, oh, look, I want to introduce this new form of gambling that we think will generate about $3 million a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are concerned about some of the harmful implications that this could have. Could you talk to us about how we could improve it? What most health promotion people say is we don't want more gambling, is what they'll say. Um, and, and I'm like, okay, thanks, Ostrich. Um, the, you know, like, I, just, I, I find it very hard to bring mm -hmm. myself to respect that position. But, I, but the field has so much promise, like, you know, I improving people's knowledge, making it easier for people to do safer things, turn, like reducing the harm caused by certain things, great stuff. But not everything is tobacco. Not everything is like every cigarette is doing you damage. Like it's like most things are not causing you harm. Mm. Uh, they can cause you harm. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, what I'm really proud of, like being part of this dangerous policy project is I'm no longer in my left field <laughs> well the thing is right because like, all right all right charlie move the camera to the left <laughs> the go to the right, right. further to the right <laughs> further to the right <laughs> oh, God. but um yeah and i it, it's been really refreshing in that way to have different ideas come at me and challenge my own ideas i mean it's not like universal meant to indoctrinate it is meant to open wise and i feel like my mind has been open studying in, at uni um because right, I'm, yeah, and it's, and I think, yeah, I'm definitely like, if I, if health promotion people actually watch this, um, I encourage you to do the same. Like, it's actually a really refreshing way of, yeah, going about things and actually, I mean, advocating your ideas, but then also challenging them and like rethinking them. And it, it's been a really eye opening experience, in my opinion. Um, to the point that I remember, you know, meeting a politician from like a different, feel a different sphere a viewpoint political ideologist and i had a general conversation with him whereas my colleague did not <laughs> um and it was a eye-opening experience i didn't realize how much i had changed in like you know being more open to new ideas and being open to be challenged actually genuinely listening without feeling like the other person's an other because i don't see the value of health that i see it um yeah but I, I'm still proud of being part of health promotion. Yes, we might look as leanies, but again, we have very good intentions to make health an easy choice. 
um, and to, you know, in, in reduce social inequities and, um, yeah. Well, it's like with the academics thing. Like, I love academia, but I have a low opinion about many academics. Uh, <laughs> I love health promotion. I mean, it's weird. I, I did study, um, for, for all of my criticisms of health promotion, I did do some social epidemiology in, in my history uh, under a brilliant professor. Uh, but it's the health promotion people that really get under my skin. Charlene <laughs> <laughs> uh, is a wonderful exception who has an open mind and uh, and does change my perspective on, on things too uh, from time to time. Uh, not not worth mentioning here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nah, nah, like ego. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, like I always get challenged in the comments too, which is amazing. Hmm. Um, it's been really, really good. So, uh, yeah, again, like you said, I'm not like you challenged me in terms of not being a blanket statement against gambling. I'm going a little bit. I'm I love scratches. <laughs> I can't help it. Scrat what, what we call scratches like those instant win cards that you that you buy. Uh, yeah, we we have a one that's super popular in Australia called Wordplay. Like it's like a love that one. <laughs> the, the, yeah, they're little crosswords. Uh, people love them. Oh, I literally and like for my birthday, I was I requested scratches. I was like, this is the time. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I can go yeah, see both sides. Been good. Mm. All right. Um, any final thoughts while we wrap up? Uh look, I, I well, Australia had some amazing economic statistics come out. Uh, Australia has reached well, not in terms of its economy, but in terms of its employment, it has reached mm. its pre-pandemic uh, levels of employment oh, yeah, in that. less than a year. Uh, after experiencing the first recession in 30 years, the recession that's already over, mm. Australia's economy is freaking amazing, and and we have thing we have privileges here in Australia that just people can't even imagine. Well, it's possible. Perfect state, like great standard of living, continuous growth, yeah, good social cohesion, and now employment starting to return to you know normal levels. That's that's amazing. So. Yeah, you really win the lottery of life if you're here in Australia. So that's my, my final thought there. Mm, yeah, that's no, quite amazing. Like the programs that we have in place in Australia. So what when the COVID hit, they had the JobKeeper program, which was to help businesses pay their uh, staff wages. Mm. And then they had the Job Seeker program for those who've lost their job and then had some um, like help in terms of finding work. Uh, and then now the job maker program, which is to incentivize businesses to hire young people mm. again, um, who are part of the job seeker plan. And then they'll help like compensate that plus add extra, um, in terms of training and all the ongoing costs required to recruit. With, with a, um, like a massively high minimum wage in Australia, like, yeah. like in the United States, they're arguing about $15 an hour. We're well above that already. Uh, and, and our unemployment rate and the U S unemployment rate is the mm. same. There's also uh, the fact that we could afford these programs because our yeah. national debt was so low relative to basically every country in the world. If we look at Japan, that has like 250% of GDP, they did a whole video on it, mm -hmm. uh, their national debt, and then they, their economy shrank uh, last year uh, by 4.8%, uh, continues to do trouble. I mean, we just, yeah, so good laughing. How about you? Final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um... Yeah, I wasn't trying to thought because I was thinking of like uh, that. Uh, Australian Open. Oh, that is my final thoughts. I was really into the Australian Open and tennis. Oh, tennis, tennis. Yeah, yeah sorry, tennis. So international viewers and it. 
oh, I was so excited. I never really got into Australian sports in general. But, um, you know, it was quite funny seeing, you know, oh, well, it's not funny at all. But, like, Victoria has to go to lockdown. Mm. Um, and the, the start open has to keep going. And when they have to call out uh, at 12.30, oh, they 11.30, because it's 12, 12 o'clock shutdown, um, 11.30, the crowds had to be like, you have to leave the stadium, that kind of thing. And it was like, boo, boo. <laughs> like, it was so loud. Like, people were so upset to, like, not stay for till midnight for the tennis. Mm. Um, yeah, and I was like, oh, so proud of Australian people. <laughs> like, well, like. It really <laughs> pushes you all over the rules as far as the game. Yeah. yeah, really. Like, it was so loud that, the, like, the coverage for it had to move outside. Like, mm. <laughs> um, yeah. And then it was really strange, again, like, when the, when the match was so so tight um and i was like oh my gosh and then you hear the crickets like nothing <laughs> um yeah so i mean i'm happy that you know shows are very proud of their sport and are willing to stand back and um yeah for their love of sport but yeah it was a well there's one like i like the tennis the one thing that i i really admire about the tennis is the same thing that i admire about a poker tournament is that the two things they have in common, well, the, the thing they have in common mm. is that unlike, you know, football or rugby or you know, other sports, it's not like you can always win from whatever position you're in. It's not like the clock is winding down and you're like 10 goals down and oh, you know, it's yeah. all over, right? Like, it's not like people are going to leave the stadium before the match finishes mm. because why would you? Like, you, you, anything could happen. Like, you could be four yeah. sets down or something two sets down and, and like fight your way back in, win, you know, the fourth set and come and like win the fifth set. Um, yeah, or like deuce and then it goes advantage and deuce again. Oh, exactly. Right. There's, there's a real arm wrestle there and you can do that the same in poker. You might lose like, you know, two thirds of your stack in, in a poker tournament, but as yeah. long as you've got a chip left and you haven't busted out, you could ultimately win the tournament. And uh, I think that's a truly uh, special thing. It creates a real like never die feeling and i think tennis also has that uh, as part of the culture so yeah australian open good yeah, stuff yeah. uh really good really good match uh, the other day um uh, between oh, oh my goodness um oh, i can't remember the names. yeah i can't remember the names either, but that's okay all mm. right any questions any feedback please leave that below mm. uh have you got anything else no no that's it thank you so much for tuning in and hope you are all staying safe and looking forward to post post-pandemic world as the vaccine starts to roll out. Yeah. I'll see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. <laughs>